0: everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Man, man, I love that song. A song, a story of God reconciling all things. People, yes, but all of creation, all of history. I was thinking about some of the topics we've been covering and will cover, and how they unfortunately get... um, I don't know, co-opted politically. So when we talk about refugees, that seems to some like a political issue. When we talk about race, it's a political issue, or poverty, political issue, the environment, it's, it's political. Um, groups of people, marginalized people that we want to welcome and love, it gets co-opted politically. And I can't help but think it's really a gospel, issue. Yeah, God wants to save us, but gospel is so much bigger than my personal relationship with Jesus so that I get to go to heaven. Gospel's so much bigger than that. The prophet Isaiah, um, speaking on behalf of God, was a little tough on his people saying, I'm I'm sick of your shows. I'm sick of your religious gatherings that really have nothing to do with my heart, with God's heart. I wonder if we could read this. I'll, I'll read it and you follow along. This is from the Message Translation, which is a modern translation of familiar words from the Bible. And this is from Isaiah 58. He's talking about the kind of fast that pleases the heart of God, but I think it's a gospel issue. This is the kind of fast that I'm after, to break chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is this, sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then, when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight, I will always show you where to go, I will give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones, you'll be like a well watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build a new, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. That's a a picture that excites me. That's a gospel picture of not just renewing and restoring our individual lives, but but a world, a, all of creation, injustice made right. And so I just encourage you, you may not agree with everything that is being talked about this summer, holy discontents, but I encourage you to come with an open mind, um, open-handed in your humility about it, and separate it from sort of the political rhetoric that so many of these issues have gotten co-opted by. Um, Thank you, team. You did such a great job. Will you show your appreciation to them? I want to invite my friend uh, Andrew Stewart to come up. Andrew can either uh, take the credit or the blame for really um, inspiring me to, to think about this issue of holy discontent things that I believe are on God's heart, the things that he loves that we should love, and the things that make him righteously angry that probably we should be righteously angry about. And over conversation, um, it just came up organically, and Andrew shared a bit of his heart of um, of his holy discontent. And I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, it's interesting. Andrew has spoken to... Large crowds of people, and yet I know he feels a certain weight today, be, maybe because it's his home church, maybe because of the, the pulpit. It's not much of a pulpit, is it? But, Small um, Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I just, I'm proud of you. You're a man of integrity, such a great family. Can I just pray for you real mm. quick? God, thank you for Andrew. Thank you for his heart. Thank you for his his life, which um, I think we can say the way Paul said to Timothy, follow me as I follow God. And uh, there are many who could say of Andrew, I'm going to follow you as you follow God and, and, and watch your integrity and watch your life and watch the decisions you make. And so anything that just needs to be forgotten, I pray we'd forget. Anything that just is of you, God, may it just hit hard. And may we be convicted and challenged. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother.
1: Amen. Well, first of all, I've got good news. Um, I can make this really short today. Seems like it's... uh Am we okay here, guys? Yeah, so it uh, seems like all this is unnecessary today. Um seems the latest convening of the IPCC, the International um, uh, Committee for Climate Change, determined that uh, we really have no issue. We just made it, there was a slight mix-up in metric to standard conversion, so we're all good. <clears throat> yeah, anyway, so... Um, Kidding aside, I, I want to say as a preface here that I find this is a very difficult topic to tackle today, partly because there is a ton of information that you have to distill down to something that fits into, I think Jonathan said it was okay, an hour and a half or so. Is that good? <laughs> um, secondly, um, it is so easy in something that you're passionate about or that it's in, incites or elicits passion to... Come off as either arrogant or preaching or somehow lecturing people about what they should or shouldn't be doing. I assure you that I'm in the same basket of those people who need changing and who need renovation in in how we tackle this this important issue of how we deal with our our world, our climate. And I just want to I want to wrap the whole discussion in that wrapper uh, and and hope that that's the spirit which you take everything I'm going to say today. So, uh, Brittany already talked about the uh, Genesis 1, I think there were earlier references to Genesis 1 today, and that's where we're going to start. This is uh, an abbreviation, I've squashed it down a bit, I've left some verses out, I've left, it's for those purists of you who are reading through the scriptures while I'm reading, you're going to miss stuff. Um, I promise you I haven't tainted or slanted the, the, the gist of what the passage says, but I think it's important for us to start there, because that's where, that's where God starts with us. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, And gathered the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear the fruit within it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. I can hardly read that. Hope you can. (laughs) God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. And He also made the stars. (laughs) Makes me think of my dad. He used to talk about God making the stars. He's talked about all this litany of things God's done, and He also made the stars. Just kind of threw those up there. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Oops, time this one. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So um, have you ever stepped back from something you've made? I think I'm going to pick on cell members like Anita or Helen who paint, or Jane Jacobs who makes beautiful fabrics. Or I think of Steve Robinson or Paul McLaurin who construct things. Have you ever done something, stepped back from it, said, yeah, that was good? Um, I like to think of God doing the same thing here. In fact, this is what the scriptures say. And it, his, The reaction to everything that, um, that God has done in that litany of elements that he puts together over the course of that first book of Genesis, everything ends with, and God saw that it was good, um, And then, so his own reaction to his creation is recorded for us for a reason, I think. And whatever the writer of the book of Genesis intended us to think about it, the refrain, God saw that it was good, and finishing on the sixth day with, it was very good, at a minimum conveys God's opinion about the finished work that he did. And the narrative continues and describes man's place in the garden, describes the intimate relationship that God helps him to form with his creation by getting him to name the animals. And so man... The garden, the creation that God's made live in harmony. So let's, a couple of, we've already seen a couple of nice images. Let's forward to the 1970s on planet Earth. In my view, a very fortunate thing happened at about that time. So this is a picture, these are two pictures of Lake Erie. Lake Erie is on fire, it's 1969 at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, so much toxic and flammable fluid and chemicals had been poured into the river by an upstream chemicals plant that the river actually caught fire. You can see the poor firemen in that black and white picture trying to put out the lake with the lake. Uh, it's a bit ironic, but... Um, in any event, this really happened in a number of our, our people's lifetimes. Some of you may even remember it. I barely do, but I do remember it. Um, It was a big deal at the time. So the reason I call this a fortunate event is because this effect of environmental degradation that had been happening for already years and years came into full view. Everybody could see what the effects were of what was happening. What had been done now was resulting in this incredible thing, a lake on fire as a result. And the, the consequence of that was that it mobilized political will, Across political lines, immobilized will across, cross border lines. Canadians and U.S. people who own all have a stake in what the Great Lakes are doing. It gave rise to the Environmental Protection Agency. It gave rise to the Clean Air and Waters Act that came of it. And the result was that a couple decades later, the Great Lakes are uh, a clean place. They have some issues but you can swim, and dive, and boat, and and fish, and do all these things within the Great Lakes, which for a while, especially in lakes like Erie and Ontario, were just basically unthinkable. So this is an example of anthropogenic change. So, everybody... Uh Uh-oh. Can you advance for me, Rex? anthropogenic. Everybody say anthropogenic. (laughs) That's a tough one, right? It's a bit of a tongue twister. So what does anthropogenic mean? Um, Anthropogenic is a term that you may hear in the future. You may have heard it in the present, in your your practices of one kind or another. It basically means I can't get there. It basically means man-made. So when people talk about anthropogenic climate change, they're talking about climate change that is induced by man or has been caused by man. So, let's talk about it. To make a long story short, um, over the last 250 years since the Industrial Revolution, we've put about 1 trillion tons of carbon into the air. We've mined it out of the ground, and we've put it into the air. Coal, oil, gas, a bunch of other things. It's about 50 cubic miles of stuff. It's a pretty incredible amount, and we're on track to do quite a bit more. Um, Interestingly enough, on an annual basis, That extra amount of carbon dioxide, which is the form in which it enters the atmosphere, is really only 3 to 4 percent of the total carbon dioxide that nature produces on an annual basis. But the difference is that nature absorbs and reabsorbs, or sorry, gives off and reabsorbs that carbon dioxide on an annual cyclic basis, and so it stays in a steady state. We're only adding 3 to 4 percent a year, but as you can imagine, of course, if you add 3 to 4% over time, over time, over time, that definitely amounts up. And what you see in this little chart, if you guys can see that, is what that's resulted in terms of how much carbon dioxide is in the air today. So, we're at a point right now where the amount of carbon dioxide in the air is higher than it's ever been in 800,000 years of history. You might, I'm, there's so much science here that I can't talk about right now. If you want to ask me how scientists know what it was 800,000 years ago, I'll, I'll come and see me afterwards if you're curious. But suffice it to say, we're at a point where we've never been before. It's a big deal. So, and by the way, just so there's no doubt, because these things come up, and uncertainties come up about what's really going on. Scientists know that the CO2 in the air is man-made, because actually the atomic signature of the atoms within the the CO2 molecules are different from molecules that are generated by the the, um, growing and degradation of of plant life on the planet. So, um, now let's talk about why that matters. This is a chart, this is the same chart over again. Now we've overlaid temperature variation with carbon dioxide amounts. What you see there is a very close correlation over time of temperature spikes with CO2 spikes. Everybody see that? The red line, I think? Yeah, the, the, the orange line is CO2 and the blue line is, is uh, temperature. And so you can see that over those 800,000 years, that the, the, the adherence of the temperature with the CO2 amounts in the atmosphere tracks very closely. Now. Today, by the way, you see those lines are kind of, they look pretty vertical, some of those jaggedy lines in the prior 100,000 years or so. But really, those are, they're steep curves, but they're still curves. The line you see in our lifetime is basically a straight line up the, from you know, in the last 250 years. Ask Glenn Robinson, or a resident geographer or geologist, how long 250 years is in geologic terms. It's like an instant, basically. and so. We've shot up in the amount we've had. We have not yet seen the temperature response, but most credible science says we're going to see a temperature response as a result of that. So that's that's our anthropogenic issue at the moment. So 2015, then 2016, 2017, 2018 had been the hottest years on record. And the hottest 10 years on record since we started taking records, which I think is about 150, 200 years ago, have all happened in the last 15 years. So, people talk a lot about temperature, but there's more to it than that. If you look at these, it's really those little guys at the top. Those, those little four slides at the top are what's called pteropods. They're tiny, tiny little organisms that live in the ocean. And those tiny little ocean uh, organisms are the food for the lower-level fish species, herring, salmon, mackerel, those kinds. And what they've discovered is that the amount of CO2, CO2 is an acid, by the way, for anybody who's a scientist in the group, um, the, the amount of acidification in the ocean has increased about 30% over the last four decades. And as a result of that, some of these little guys' shells are starting to deteriorate. They're made of calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate dissolves in the, in the presence of acid. And the and that may not seem like a big deal, these tiny little things, but the issue is that they are the feedstock for the whole pyramid that goes up through the ocean. And so it's a big deal if they disappear. Similarly, on land, and this is actually something that's also recently been um, put out in the press, and I'm not sure if anybody noticed it in the last couple of weeks, there has been a massive insect decline over the past three decades. Um, we're losing many... <laughs> This one doesn't show mosquitoes. They, unfortunately, aren't decreasing. But um, (laughs) a lot of the other ones are. Um, Has anybody noticed that there are fewer bugs striking their windshield on the way up north these days versus 15, 20 years ago? Anybody else notice that? Well, okay, I do. (laughs) In the same way, these guys are really important, right? They are the the cornerstone of the terrestrial ecosystem. If If you lose them, and what you get is what scientists call the trophic cascade, um, technical term for what happens on uh, knock-on effects. If you don't have mosquitoes, you don't have flies, you don't have frogs. If you don't have frogs, you don't have fish, and so on, so on up the chain. And so that's a big deal. Good news so far, right? Um, so you may be wondering, if all this is true, why is this not being trumpeted? Why is this not all over the news? Why is this not all over the press? And the fact is, it is an increasing number. Um, it's a couple of random slides here. Um, and you don't need to see that one just yet. Um, there's not much debate. Amongst the scientific community, there's not much debate about whether or not we are experiencing significant climate change and environmental change as a result of what's going on um, in terms of our practices. There is debate about the severity of impact. There's debate about the timing and the, the precise... Um, Sequencing of events, but there's no debate about whether it's actually happening or not and but two things get in the way of us Understanding that and it all comes down to vested interests Some of the stuff I have to say this morning is not easy to say but here goes number one There's business vested interests business is in the practice of building a product or a service and selling it Business is not in the practice of figuring out what the right rules are to govern whether that's a good thing to do for the environment or not And so, firstly, business is not concerned about, at least, unless you have, I mean, you will have concerned people within a business, but in its very function, business's process is not about figuring that out. Um, And, in fact, business will sometimes resist change if it goes against the bottom line. It's, It's a normal reaction. I have the same tendency. If something is impacting on my ability to do business and make a profit, then I don't want to make that change. Do you think those... Chemical companies at the in the lake or the, sorry the um, Cuyahoga River uh, going to Lake Erie would have changed their practices if policies, rules, public outcry hadn 't motivated them to do so. It, there wouldn 't have been a need to secondly there 's political vested interest, um, again, tricky thing to say. Politicians have, in our democracy, have a four-year life cycle to prove their worth. It's very hard for a politician to say, we need to make this big change now because in 25 years' time, we're going to reap reward from it. That's not how you get re-elected. You get re-elected by doing things that show results in three, four years' time. And so it's very difficult for politicians to, to be the ones to make those, make those important and tough decisions. Ironically enough, what that results in is countries like China, where there's no democracy, being able to act more quickly. They're putting up solar farms at a rate that is, is dizzying, and they're adding electric, electrified cars at a rate that is well beyond what we're doing, and they're, they're in fact um, assuming a de facto leadership position. And it's all because they don't have to sort of measure these four-year life cycles. Enough on that, though. Um, What further complicates this is the current, very polarized political climate we live in in North America. um, What happens whenever an, an issue comes to the floor in North America, to me, seems a little bit like a knife edge. The issue drops down out of the sky and immediately gets scattered to one side or the other. If a Democrat or a liberal person takes a a viewpoint on a certain issue, the conservative or Republican person feels obliged to take the opposite, and vice versa. And that makes it very difficult to have reasoned debate about what's really going on. And what it results in is confusion on our part as to what's really happening, because you get these apparently competing voices about what actually is happening. How does that come to bear on the body of Christ? So, a recent Gallup poll said that um, only 34% of self-described evangelicals think that climate change is real. Um, At the same time that the poll was taken, the, um, the, the population at large registered at about 50%. So, evangelicals, as a rule, are less believing that there is climate change, that there is environmental degradation taking place maybe not surprisingly, in that's this last 2016 election. By the way, I'm talking a lot about US politics. Our politics very much mirrors it, maybe with more muted muted nuances, but we're very much the same. Um, Also, my target market is usually in the United States. In 2016, 81%, which is a new record, voted for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the person who has repeatedly said, climate change is a hoax that's been perpetrated upon us by the Chinese. And so there's a polarization that's resulted because of, call it an affiliation or a, an affinity with evangelicals to side with Republicans on various issues. And that affinity is understandable because Republicans as a rule have espoused some things that are important to evangelical people, right to life being one very prominent one. So as a result of that, we are... Effectively, sorry, I want to say one more thing. I saw a, a, a poll by The Guardian which, which pulled evangelicals on the issue of climate change. And what they concluded in large measure was that the reason evangelicals don't latch on to the issue of environmental degradation Is because the people who are talking about it are the people they disagree with about all the other things, and so they can't accept that that person might have something true to say about what's happening with climate change, environmental degradation, and that's it's a very I understand that dynamic. It's it's difficult, but it very much gets in the way of us having a clear picture of what's actually going on. Um, As a result, um, we're behind the world on thought leadership. We're behind, on the, uh, we're behind on accepting what the science is, what the scientific fact is. And so I want to say this. Do you want to bet on the over or the under that in 10 years' time, everybody in this room is going to acknowledge the, fa- the fact of environmental degradation, is going to acknowledge the fact of climate change, and is going to acknowledge the urgency of it, that it's a clear and present danger? I'll, take any, I'll, I'll accept any takers on the bet because I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And so what, that, what we really need to get our heads around is, do we want to lead on this issue or do we want to be the followers? And by the way, if I'm wrong, say my bet is wrong and that doesn't happen, and like the initial comic shows, there really is no problem, what would be the downside to Christians being known to be the zealots of the protection of the environment for God's sake? Why, why would that be a bad thing for us? The whole gospel is one that includes the incredible gift of God, the incredible gift of God in creation, and bears with it an outsized responsibility too, to be the ones to steward it, nurture and take a leadership position on it. So there's no downside to my view. Spoiler alert, environmentalism equals worship. Um, I remember when we first talked about the environment in our cell uh, a couple of years ago, I remember Christine Hunt saying, that really our reverent, concerned response uh, to what's going on in the environment amounts to an act of worship. And I, I like that way of thinking about it. Um, careful reverence for God's created world and all that's in it is an act of worship. If you go back to the Genesis 1 narrative, God saw that it was good. God appreciated what he'd done. He liked it. He, he thought it was well done, well put together. And he, that being the case, think about some of the human examples I mentioned of people doing good work, you want people, when you've done something good, also to appreciate it. At a minimum, our response to God should be to appreciate what he's done and to uh, treat with utter reverence the thing he's done. As that video clip earlier on said, that doesn't mean you're worshipping the environment. It means that you're worshipping the creator of the environment. Environmentalism. Also, if I can get there, obedience. It's also a matter of obedience. Um, in the parable that Jesus taught about the talents and the servants, most, most of the people in this room know about the, par- the parable of the talents and the servants, what he says, he asks each of his servants to give an account for the resources he has entrusted them with. And I see our role with creation being like that. Um, Jesus created the universe by the power of his word. That's what it says in the scriptures. And then he handed it to us to enjoy and to steward. And so, that being the case, you can see this as one of his, the talents that he's given us. And he's entrusted to us as his servants. So, I want to be in a position to say how I responded to, to the gift of that talent, and how I stewarded that talent. So, I do see it as a matter of obedience as well. Thirdly, it's a matter of justice. Climate change's adverse effects have an outsized impact on poor nations. 99% of poor nations are the ones who, uh, who basically take most of the hit associated with climate change. Yet the 50 least developed nations in the world produce 1% of the climate change effects, basically, gases or environmental degradation versus the developed world. In our world, environmental change means we've got to turn the thermostat down. In their world, it means they may not eat. They may have to vacate their homes and leave the island entirely because of sea change rise. It's already happened in a couple of low-lying islands in the Pacific. Um, they may succumb to, to drought. They may succumb to, to, um, to heat prostration. So it's a much bigger issue for them. And so to us, environmentalism is a matter of social justice. And we may not feel it, we may not see it with our neighbors right next door in North America, but our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, um, people in other nations are the, ones that, are the ones that may suffer disproportionately for what's going on in the environment. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that. So right about now, you figure I should be wearing a camel's hair shirt eating locusts, right? Like the, <laughs> the doom and gloom old prophets. So what, then, shall we do? Any ideas? Okay. We can do some things. And I'm hesitant to be prescriptive about what we should do, because I'm conscious of the fact that what you should do may be different from what I should do. And also, we also have a track record of getting it wrong in terms of what the right thing to do is. So I don't want to be too prescriptive, but I want to kind of give you a, a menu of options that you could look at as a possibility. First of all, understand where greenhouse gas, and call it the knock-on effects of environmental degradation, come from. They come from a couple of different sources. These are billions of tons of carbon dioxide on an annual basis. What you see from that is showers are actually OK, um, cars and trucks and other transport not surprisingly pretty high. How about that, though? Meat production, almost as much as cars and trucks, all cars and trucks on the road combined, believe it or not. Part of that is because cows, by the way, who are the, unfortunately, I hate to say this, they're the worst perpetrators, they not only uh, require a lot of CO2 to grow them, they also belch out a lot of methane. And methane, unfortunately, is about 25 times as potent as CO2 is, as CH4 is, is as CO2 is as a a heat-trapping gas. And so. Meat production, big deal. In context, pound of meat, 70 miles of driving a car. Ten hamburgers, one year's worth of showering. If 50% of US meat consumption were cut out, 45 million cars, it's the equivalent of 45 million cars taken off the road. So it's a big deal. By the way, not all meat's created equal. This is how much Um, CO2 production per pound, I think it's per pound or per kilogram of consumable meat, um, beef produces. Chicken is tenth of that and lentils even a lot less than that. So there are options. So practical application, eat less meat, especially beef. Um, I can see people's fingers going up to their ears now. (laughs) I haven't counted deforestation yet, which also contributes to the problem, but let's, let's not depress ourselves too much here. The second application is waste less food. In North America, we throw out, how much of our food do we throw out? How much food that's grown does not make it into our stomachs? Anybody know? About 40%. It's a staggering amount. 40% of the food that was grown for us doesn't make it into our mouths, doesn't make it into our stomachs. and so. There's, some of that is in the supply chain, happens before it even reaches our fridge, but a lot of it, 25% of it apparently, is attributable to our wastage um, that happens within our own fridges and our own, our own cupboards. So, do an inventory someday and see if it's true. Um, you know, maybe we're better than average, but we waste a huge amount of food. And it's, you know, leave, leave aside the moral issue related to wasting food. Um, Of course, if you did that, 25% of the CO2 production, 25% of the environmental degradation attributable to food production would disappear. So it'd be a big deal if we did that. Finally, buy food with lower environmental impact. I think I messed up that slide. Um, What I mean by that is, oh, there you go, ecosystem impact. you saw the slide about insect populations declining worldwide, which is a scary thing. And And part of the problem, by the way, is they don't even know why exactly. They know some of it's climate change, they know some of it's deforestation, they know some of it's fertilizers, they know that a lot of it is pesticides. And so if you eat organic food, um, organic certified food has to has to comply with the regulations that say they are not using pesticides, they're not using hormones, they're not using antibiotics in the growth of whatever the product is, whether it's meat or whether it's vegetables or anything else. And by, by the way, I'm I'm not a proponent of organic per se. I just know that that. Those are some of the elements of how organic food is grown, and it will make a difference in terms of the impact on on the insect population, in particular. I don't even know if it actually is better for you. My daughter, the nutritionist, will say it is, and it probably is. But to me, right now, in, in today's talk, the main thing is if you don't put out pesticides, you won't be killing bees, you won't be killing caddis flies, some of the other 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 insects that are needed for the for the ecosystem pyramid that we talked about earlier on. So. Um, I've deliberately chosen things, which there are other things, right? You could drive less, um, you you could turn your AC up or down and use less AC. Um, I wouldn't want to recommend people use less heat in the winter time, not in Canada at least, but there are other things you can do. These things I've chosen because they are, at least theoretically, things you can do instantly. You can do them right away, you can do them without infrastructure change, you don't have to change your way of life, you have to wait, change your way of cooking, but you don't have to change your way of life, um, and they're, they're accessible to you, and they also fall into the category of the power of the consumer. Um, if people buy in a manner that fits that profile or some of those profiles, it will move the needle in terms of what's offered in the market. People have probably heard about Beyond Beef that has recently made its IPO public debut. That product of meat that or something that feels, looks, tastes like meat but is not really, it, nobody, would have, nobody would have started that if it hadn't been necessary or hadn't been demanded by the consumer. As a consumer, we have a way more powerful voice than we think. We can move the needle on what gets produced and how it gets produced. So, having said all that, um, it, I, don't wanna, I don't want to make this a lecture about the right things or the wrong things to do, because really it comes down to a matter of the heart. Um, there are some, those are some practical ideas, but more important um, than what we do Uh, is what what our heart does. So I got three suggestions on this front, and they're admittedly broad and vague, but there are things that I think will help us. First, ask God to reveal his heart to us regarding the world. Not according to, as Jonathan said, political expediency or the things that have been fed to us, but ask God what he wants us to do. Um, Ask us how he wants us to interact with the world he's given us. Um, it's, It's ours to steward, it's not ours to own. It's his, he made it, he saw that it was good. What does he want us to do? What does he want you to do? Secondly, where we've not revered or respected him in this matter, and that's a matter of your own hearts, acknowledge it and repent of it. I have to do it on a regular basis. And then finally, ask him to show us what we can do. Scriptures are full of references, and I've just picked out a few, that suggests that when people turn to God, he will heal their land. A lot of people probably know this passage from Second Chronicles, where it says, if my people will humble themselves, turn to me, I will heal their land. In Isaiah, it says the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. In Hosea, it says, I'll make a covenant, a covenant with the animals and the beasts of the field. And then in, in the New Testament, Paul says, All of creation is waiting for the sons of God to, be, to appear. They're eager, waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. A couple more things about that. We will get it wrong. We'll do the wrong things. We'll make mistakes. But one thing I do know. Is that God loves us. He loves all His people. He loves everything He's made. And I also know that He can make mistakes right. Mistakes that are made in good faith, with an attempt to to honor Him by them, He can fix. Um, so we'll get some things right. We'll get some things wrong. But if our hearts are right with respect to Him, what it is we should do, what He has calling us to do, He can orchestrate that all into a perfect solution. I'm convinced of it. I've seen it before. Um, I want to recall the, the passage in the New Testament whereby Jesus was watching and his disciples were watching people put money into the coffers of the temple. And a widow came and put two pennies in the temple, or two mites, I think it was called, um, versus all the rich people who were pouring money into the coffers. And Jesus said, she's given more than all these other guys that came by. She gave out of her poverty. These guys gave out of their wealth. Now, I don't want to take the analogy too far. But basically, um, what that suggests to me is that God's economy is not our economy. Don't equate the smallness of the thing you can do with how much God can make out of it. God can do anything with the little bit in good faith and with good hearts that you give him and that you you sign up to do for his purposes. This is just one piece of the puzzle of what obedience means, what righteousness means, um, but it's something that we can observe and can do something about. It's only half an hour, Jonathan. (laughs) Let me close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you again for the magnificence, the wonder of the things you have made for us, for us to enjoy, for us to steward. Thank you for making us in in your image to take care and steward these things. And thank you that you can make everything new and make everything right. You have come to restore and to give back where the destroyer has stolen. And uh, you will honor the actions that come from our hearts. Uh, As Jonathan said at the beginning, Lord, I, I pray that anything that is necessary for us to hear and to absorb, you would help us to take in today, and everything else would get released as chaff, and that your holy will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.